You know, we're hearing more and more these days about cancel culture. And uh, if you say, yeah, I've, I've been hearing about this, I'm not sure exactly what it is. Here's an actual dictionary definition uh, that I looked up because it, it, you hear it a lot and, and you see some examples of it and it's troubling to many of us, I suppose. But cancel culture refers to the popular practice of withdrawing support for canceling, as it were, public figures, companies, individuals, after they have done or said something considered objectionable or offensive. Cancel culture is generally discussed as being performed on social media in the form of group shaming. Uh, But it just seems almost every day, uh, if not every week, there is a national example of this. And it, it is troubling. And I have to say that you know that when a liberal political commentator like Bill Maher and a conservative political commentator like Tucker Carlson are in agreement that cancel culture is out of control. It is out of control. The catalyst for this week's discussion was the recent ousting of Teen Vogue editor-in-chief Alexi McCammon, who was forced to resign over Uh, even before she actually started the job, after the magazine's staff expressed outrage over allegedly racist and homophobic tweets she made a decade ago when she was a 17-year-old high schooler. And it's reported that McCammon had previously apologized for those now old tweets, but that was not enough. I thought it was interesting that even a a, a liberal political commentator like Bill Maher would call for a return to common sense. Those were the words he used this week. Recognizing that people say things in private and in public that they later regret. And who among us would disagree with that? We've all said things that we've regretted. And sometimes we've landed in big trouble. And so on the one hand, it is more than troubling that this cancel culture current just seems to be picking up speed in these particular days. But if you look beneath the surface of the outrage and shaming, if you look beneath or behind even the opinion debates and personal responses, I actually think there is a cultural court of law taking shape that assumes authority and power to judge the actions and even the attitudes of others, to hold them accountable for those actions and attitudes, and then to enforce an appropriate penalty for those cultural sins. And the scary thing, if if you were to ask me, I, I think would point to at least three particular aspects. And first of all, it's not clear what standard of judgment we're accountable to and being judged by. And even, again, I I read an article that, that uh, kind of summarized some of Bill Maher's comments this week, and I'm not lift, lifting him up as any kind of you know, authoritative figure that we should all listen to and model our lives after. I just think it's interesting that he brings this perspective. He made the comment this week, the goalposts keep moving. And that's a terribly frustrating position to be in, to think that the standard is here, so if we live up to that, we're okay, but then somebody changes the standard. So what is the standard of judgment? Second of all, who holds the real power of accountability? It's not clear to us. And then thirdly, and perhaps most terrifying, where is the pathway of redemption? There are little murmurs of it, but on the whole, nobody is standing up and saying what you did was really bad, it was hurtful, it was wicked, immoral, sinful, whatever adjective would be attached. And and after declaring that, saying, but there is a way for you to be restored. I actually think that cancel culture, believe it or not, I, I, and I'm prepared to even walk through some scriptures that I think will show this, it is a dim 
albeit distorted, profoundly distorted reflection of the gospel. You say, what? Time out. Yeah, just dim and distorted are key words, okay? Um, In Romans, we've been learning a couple of important truths, and one is that God has a standard of judgment for us all. It's his law. And God has the ultimate power to hold us accountable. And so you have groups of people or individuals who, who see some kind of injustice, we could use the term sin, whether it's a biblically defined sin or not, that's another discussion, that would be the distortion of it, but they wanna hold individuals accountable to a standard that they have established. Do you see the correlation there? And today we'll step into what I think is the most remarkable truth so far, because we, we understand uh, the, the law that, that God holds us accountable to, we understand even because of the weeks of study that we've put into Romans so far, that, that his wrath is coming. But today we step into what I think is the most remarkable truth so far, and that is that God actually has a pathway of redemption available, and that's where it is wildly different from the cancel culture. There is a way back to God. There's a way into peace. There is a way into reconciliation, both with God and one another. There's a way to be restored. I'm so thankful that the gospel is not a strategy of self-help, or even self-protection. I'm thankful that the gospel is not simply a story of a great man who's a moral example that all of us should aspire to follow. I'm thankful the gospel is not a tale of progression from the imperfection of our humanity to the perfection of some kind of achievable divinity. Rather, the gospel is the news of what God the Father has done and is doing by the power of God the Holy Spirit through the life and death and resurrection of God the Son to save sinners who actually deserve the ultimate cancellation. It's the condemnation and punishment of hell. And the good news has at its heart a sacrifice, the cross, And without this cross, there is no rescue. There is no deliverance from sin. There is no pardon for our guilt, no escaping God's condemnation or the wrath that is to come. Without the cross, there is no reconciliation with God or with one another. There is no atonement for all the wrongs we have committed and all the guilt that we bear for that wrong. Without the cross, there's no healing or remedy for disease. There's no resurrection from the grave and there is no hope of the eternal life. Without the cross, there is no gospel. And so we come today to Romans 3, verses 21 through 26. We've been moving at a rapid pace, but we're gonna slow it way down today because these six verses are like a really fine cut of meat that needs to be savored and enjoyed and all of the rich nourishment located in these six verses just needs to be taken into our souls without hurry, without carelessness. And so my prayer is that God would give us the grace to do that. Last week, we looked at these two powerful words, and if your Bibles are open to Romans 3, and I hope they are, whether it's the printed page or an electronic copy, but look at Romans 3, verse 21, for after describing that God's righteousness has been revealed against sin in the form of his wrath, in the form of his judgment, condemnation, the accountability that he brings the whole world to, Paul uses these two glorious words, but now... 
And from there he goes on to say, in contrast to all the darkness of judgment and condemnation and accountability, there's something else taking place. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray together. Oh, great God, how we thank you for the good news of a righteousness which is apart from the works of the law. How we thank you that you have given good news here that there is a righteousness available for all who believe. It's not reserved for a select few, It's not reserved for those who have secret religious knowledge or secret insight into the mysteries of the universe, but it is universally available. And we pray that by your Spirit, you would bring such deep conviction on our hearts, not just of our sin, but of this this unique way of salvation, the only way as Jesus described himself. Oh, Lord God, open our hearts that we may believe your truth and move our wills that we may obey it fully and bless us for your name's sake that we may arrive one day in your presence beholding the glory of God. And all of that we pray in the faith and hope and expectation that in Christ it is so. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God has been revealing things to us in the gospel. And in chapter one, Paul said, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And the terrifying aspect of this revelation is that he, first of all, upholds his perfect nature and his perfect law and says, I am the one by whom your life is evaluated. My law is the standard by which all of your works are judged. And that's what brings every mouth to that place where it is closed Every soul is accountable to him. And he holds us accountable based on what we see in creation and what he reveals in his word. That's an aspect of the righteousness of God being revealed to us. But now, Paul says, the righteousness of God has been manifested, a synonym for the word revealed, apart from the law. He's revealing to us a redemptive righteousness. There are several attributes or characteristics of it. First of all, notice that it is a righteousness originating in God, not the law. So this is where he begins to make a massive shift, and especially in the hearts and minds of the religious Jews who would be representative of any religious group that thinks it can can be pious enough, zealous enough, obedient enough, committed enough to earn God's favor and to earn this way of righteousness has been manifested. And even the little verb tense here that Paul uses is actually pointing to something that happened in the past. Something was done, something was completed, and and by virtue of its significance, has bearing on the Romans that he's writing to in this letter at that present moment. So the question is, well, 
when did this thing happen? Where, what was it? Tell us the details. Well, the righteousness of God, that is the morally right character of God is being clearly shown. And then he says, look again at at verse 21, apart from the law. That is apart from doing the law. Uh, and, And then he inserts this little phrase, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. He's like, if you're really paying attention to the law and prophets, they've been pointing this direction from Genesis to Malachi. Old Testament's been pointing you away from the works of the law as a means of righteousness, pointing you to someone, right? And we'll get there in just a moment. So it's a righteousness originating in God, not the works of the law. Secondly, it's a righteousness by faith, uh, not the works that we would do through faith, We'll explain more of this in in just a moment, but I love where Paul continues to go, a righteousness available to all. Not just really committed Jews in this case, in this context. Then he reminds us, it's available for all who believe, for there's no distinction. God doesn't discriminate among groups. He doesn't play favorites when it comes to our sin and the need of salvation. All have sinned. That is, all have missed the mark by violating the divine law. There are no exceptions in this room. We sometimes fall in that trap of comparison, don't we? Uh, The snare of compare. That's a little phrase that I first heard Kristen use. She had read a book, I think, a a number of years ago. Some of you may even know what book that comes from. The snare of compare. Well, we we do that um, from the time we're we're little enough to be aware of who's around us. One of our children, uh, one of our daughters, when when she would go to school, would come home and be able to tell you what every child in the classroom wore. She just just was tuned into that. We have another child, a son, who even by the end of the school year, what, kindergarten, first grade, he didn't even know all the names of the kids in the class, let alone what they were wearing. But our daughter, Kate, was dialed into this stuff. And I think there's something in us that, that would like to be able to compare, and as long as we can find people who are worse off than we are, whether that be you know, physically or morally or financially, we feel better about ourselves. And we try to avoid people who, who are uh, more spiritual or more successful or more whatever it is because they make us feel badly about ourselves. Well, God's not putting us all on some kind of grand you know, comparison, comparison scale and going, you know, the top 50% make it into heaven and the bottom 50%, too bad for you. No, what what Paul is saying and has said, all have sinned. All have come short of the glory of God. That's hard to admit, isn't it? I I was thinking of a number of occasions and I could tell stories as you could of our own kids, particularly when they're little, they get caught and they're classic examples of this and just, I mean, you can Google it and find, you know, funny little videos that are posted, you know, kids with chocolate smeared all over their face and mom standing there with the camera going, did you eat the brownies? No. Do you know what happened to the cookies? No. And I think how foolish for us to stand before God Almighty who knows all things and basically go, no, I didn't sin. All have sinned. All come short of the glory of God. Now for the Jews, that was a particularly devastating statement because the Old Testament is filled with promises for national Israel in particular that there will be a day when Messiah will come and he will bring in this glorious kingdom and they will experience the glory of God. 
passages like Isaiah 35 verses 1 and 2 where the, the prophet describes the wilderness and the dry land being glad, the desert rejoicing and blossoming like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. And Paul steps right into the middle of that great hope for Israel based on the Messiah, the prophecies of of those like Isaiah, and says, you're going to come short of it. It's like taking a trip where you plan to go 600 miles to this particular destination that you can't wait to experience, can't wait to see, can't wait to be there, and your vehicle only carries you 599 miles. You're coming up short. What a devastating thing for anyone who has the hope of eternal life or being in the presence of God for Paul to say, you've come short of it. You see, not only do we express our sin, I'm going back to chapters one and two, by exchanging the immortal glory of God for images, Paul had written about that in chapter one, but through our sin, we actually exclude ourselves, disqualify ourselves from completing this trip into his presence. We will never be righteous enough. Paul's been saying it, he's reinforcing it, and and we need to acknowledge it. There are a lot of religious people in the world who wanna wanna claim a group or a way of belief, some kind of tag or title, but my friends, whether you are an Orthodox Jew or a confessing Catholic or a denominational Baptist, a pious Muslim or a temple-qualified Latter-day Saint, without this righteousness that Paul is speaking of here, you will not see the glory of God. You will not enter the blessings of eternal life in his presence. And that's where Paul goes on in verse 24 to give this glorious truth. This is the epicenter of the gospel. And that is that God does something for us we can never do for ourselves. And what does he do? He justifies us in order that we might be perfectly righteous. Now those are legal terms. And I want to walk through this and and break this apart into three key components. It is absolutely essential both to the destiny of your soul and the peace of your heart to understand these things. When you get a hold of this great gospel truth, it will transform everything about you. God justifies sinners who can never be righteous on their own, but in reality brings them to that place of perfect righteousness. Now we're gonna look at the source of justification, the ground of justification, and the means, because they're all packed into these few verses. Look at verse 24, first of all, and let's explore, first of all, the grace of God as the source of our justification. Paul says, all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now this, when he uses the word all uh, in this passage, um, certainly all have sinned. That's, that's universally true. But, but you can't jump to the, the conclusion that, well, then all are universally saved. No, because there's only one way to be saved. There's only one way to be justified. So all doesn't mean that everyone is automatically saved. We have to understand verse 24 in light of the whole passage where Paul Paul is clearly stating that salvation comes only through faith in Jesus Christ uh, and specifically for his substitutionary atonement on the cross. And then Paul uses this great word justified. Oh, my friend, if if you don't know this term, you need to know it. And it means, as you can see from the screen, to declare 
righteous. Or as the commentator Douglas Moo writes in his commentary, uh, the epistles to the Romans, it means to be acquitted by God from all charges that could be brought against you because of your sin. I can tell you right now, there's a long list of charges God could bring against me to secure my conviction. And if you're honest, you're in the same boat. The question is, how can God do this? Well, he begins to unpack this a little bit. First of all, justification is by his grace. Oh, that's such good news. Grace is unmerited favor in its simplest definition. So God is telling us up front, I do justify sinners. I do favors for people who don't deserve it. There's a little distinction. We were actually talking about this in our men's meetup Friday morning. I think it was Bob who brought it up that we were, we were just rejoicing in the mercy we receive. Mercy is that you don't actually uh, get what you deserve. And in this case, it would be judgment and condemnation for our sins. Grace is that you actually receive something you don't deserve. And Paul is saying very simply that this justification is by grace. It's almost like God saying, well, sure you didn't earn it. That's the whole point of grace. And he's not even saying, you know, do the very best you can and I'll make up the difference. Well, that's not true grace. That may be assistance or help, but that's not grace. Grace is unmerited, unconstrained favor. And then he adds these little words, as a gift. And some of your English versions may actually say freely. Because we're, we're, we're trying to express in English what is originally a Greek term and a Greek thought. But this brings us back to the place that that's why it has to be a faith because you can't earn it. But some would say, well, how can God be just and let any truly guilty person go free? That's a great question. You know, if you've been reading the news lately, there's um, a guy out in Los Angeles who's in a lot of trouble right now with certain groups anyhow because he's made some policy changes and practices that seem to be favoring the rights of criminals over their victims. And I... I don't know enough to say, yes, he really is, or no, he's not. I've just, I've, it's been interesting, it's been in the news, and you know, sadly, we're, we're a people who are just stirred up about everything at the moment. But I will say, if he actually is favoring the rights of criminals over their victims, that's injustice. And all of us should be bothered by that. And it's the same kind of thing in our hearts that would say, is God unjust? And especially if you're looking at this from the victim's perspective, and, and let's face it, most of us have experienced grievous sin. Someone has said or done things to us that really were horrific, and one of the hopes in our hearts is that God sees it all, knows it all, and will make it right. And I'll be the first to admit that if God's just letting people off the hook, well, that is unjust. That's troubling. Well, this is what brings us to the ground of our justification and that is the cross of Christ. There's some beautiful terms that, that Paul employs now to help us understand how God can justly justify us. And the first is redemption. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption has the idea of, of letting a prisoner go free because a price has been paid in this case it's guilty people God ransoms sinners one author writes it's the recalling of captives sinners 
from the captivity of sin through the payment of a ransom for them. And specifically, as, as we will see, it, it is Christ's death. Criminals, yes, but enslaved to that criminal way of thinking, behaving, living. That's you and me. Redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then look at verse 25 because Paul gets even more specific so we will understand what what this redemption in Christ Jesus entailed. Verse 25 says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That's a big word, but we're gonna park on it a little bit. So I want every one of you to understand what propitiation is when you go out of here because it's glorious. Now, I mean, these truths, beloved, uh, these truths are like rocket fuel in, in the engine of your soul. I mean, this is intended to just send you soaring. There's deliverance from your sin. There's deliverance from your guilt because God acted through Christ. He put him forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now, we've already seen that God's wrath is being stored up against all sin. That was chapter two, verse five. Paul said, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The question is, how will God's wrath be averted for any of us? Because it would be unjust for God to just say, you know what, I'm just gonna let that sin go. It's no big deal. No, sin has to be paid for. Well, here it is in this Big fancy term, propitiation. Do you know this is the same word that is translated in the Old Testament as mercy seat? Do you know what the actual mercy seat was in the Old Testament? Some of you would say, I do. Others would say, no, have no idea. Well, um, let me skip over this. Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, as he had been ordained, uh, through Moses, his brother Aaron was the first high priest, and then there was a, a succession of high priests who were called to a very special task, but once a year, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, and he would enter the Holy of Holies with blood. There was a bull that was slaughtered on the Day of Atonement, and there was a goat. And you can read all of this in Leviticus 16, and you will find that the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies and would actually sprinkle the Ark of the Covenant with the blood of the sacrifice. That was a symbol of the atoning work that actually God was doing through that sacrifice, through the work of the priest, for the sins of Israel. It was a graphic picture of what was necessary for God's wrath to be satisfied. And the actual, the the lid of the ark, the, the covering that rested on the top, specifically was the mercy seat. You you could even say the it it was the 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 propitiatory lid. Now, under the old covenant, um, that was the, the mercy seat. But what Paul is telling us here is that God put forward Jesus Christ as the propitiation. Look at verse 25 again with me. By his blood. So it's not a bull or a goat any longer that's being sacrificed and that blood sprinkled on the mercy seat. It's actually the Son of God who laid down his life. We're gonna enter Holy Week next Sunday with a a, a celebration on Palm Sunday and that's gonna move all the way through our Good Friday service and then culminate on Resurrection Sunday, Easter morning. And, And the cross is central and the death of Jesus Christ is everything to that Holy Week. 
And the reason we set aside a week like that each year to celebrate is because we recognize that if God the Father had not put him forward and Christ had not gone to the cross and shed his blood, then the wrath of God would still burn hot against all of us. There would be no hope whatsoever of wrath being averted in a just way. But when God put him forward, as verse 25 says for us, as a propitiation by his blood shed on the cross, there was a diverting of God's wrath to Jesus. It all fell on him in that horrific day when he was crucified and God's wrath was spent on Jesus so that sinners like us could receive forgiveness by faith and know there's no wrath left for you or me. So our mercy seat under the new covenant, the new agreement, if you will, is the cross. That's why we as followers of Jesus love the cross. We sing about it. We speak about it. We preach, as Paul said earlier, the the gospel of the cross because we know that we have no life, no forgiveness, no hope. We have nothing really to live for apart from the cross. It grieves me when people come up with alternatives to the propitiation of Christ on the cross. Do you see how from God's vantage point, as God the Father put forward God the Son to be that great sacrifice and says it's all there, it is a gift of grace, you can't add to it. Do you see how offensive it would be then if you or I would actually bring something to kind of contribute? As if somehow the blood of Jesus is not adequate? What an insult to God. So Paul is telling us that the cross of Christ is the ground of our justification. It's where a real redemption has taken place. It's where a divine propitiation has been made. And then number three, look again at the text. It's also a demonstration of something. And God is actually vindicating his patience with sinners. A a, a patience that is often misunderstood. And some would even look at all the the sins prior to the cross and say, well, it must not be a big deal because God didn't punish everybody for their sins. That, oh, that's such a narrow perspective, limited in its understanding. Paul writes in verse 26, it was to show his righteousness. The cross was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Just because your sins and mine were in fact punished fully in Jesus on the cross. The justifier, yes, that he might be able to turn to us and say, I do forgive you for Christ's sake. You will not bear wrath because he bore wrath. You will not bear condemnation because he was fully condemned. You will not suffer horrifically and bear the shame of your sin because he suffered horrifically and bore shame unlike any other person's ever known. God is vindicating his patience with sinners. In our men's meetup, we actually read through First and Second Peter over recent weeks. We just started Revelation, and I'll put in a little plug for men's meetups. If you're not a part of one, guys, Saratoga Springs Monday morning, Uh, High Point Coffee in West Jordan on Tuesdays at 6.30 and uh, Fridays right here at 7. Our group's reading through Revelation. Can't wait to go deeper into that. But when we were reading through First and Second Peter, one of the themes that we encountered uh, was that in, in the last days, scoffers will come and say, where's the promise of his coming? All things kind of continue just as they always have been. And sometimes we look at the delay of God's return with 
frustration, particularly those of us who just say, man, there's so little in this world that really holds me here. I just want to be with Jesus. I want to be free from my sin. I want to be free from the chaos of this culture at this moment. Jesus, where are you? Well, in the same way that he was very patient with sinners prior to the cross, he remains very patient with sinners after the cross. But both old covenant nations and new covenant nations find hope singularly in the cross. I'm thankful that God is patient. Jerry Bridges, who I've shared with you before, is a man, he's now with the Lord, but he's written multiple books, and uh, I feel like in many ways God used him as a, a pastoral figure for my own soul through the years. But in his book, The Gospel for Real Life, and the subtitle is Turn to the Liberating Power of the Cross, Bridges writes, the cross then is an expression of God's wrath towards sin as well as his love to us. It expresses his holiness in his determination to punish sin even at the cost of his son. And it expresses his love in sending his son to bear the punishment we so justly deserve. What a staggering love. What a staggering sacrifice. The cross is the ground of your justification. Thirdly, the faith of the believer is the means of justification. That's kind of like how you get from here to there, if, if you will, so to speak. Well, we need to be careful in, in looking at the text. Now, there are three different verses that speak of our faith. Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, verse 22 says, by his blood to be received by faith. So there's redemption or there's propitiation by his blood, but, but you receive it only by faith. And then finally here in verse 26, this is for the one who has faith in Jesus. In Jesus, not in my works, in Jesus. Not in my religious piety and zeal, in Jesus. Not in my family tree, my, my heritage as a religious household, in Jesus. Jesus is the only saving object of faith. Sometimes we struggle, and it's not uncommon for those who make professions of faith early in life to reach a point where they look back and they wonder, and I've shared my own testimony, how I had great struggles through high school and into my sophomore year of college, because I, I actually made a profession of faith when I was around four. And I remember wrestling, thinking, did I, did I know enough? Was I sincere enough? Did I believe enough? And what a, what a massive shift it was when God used an uncle of mine in particular to say, Danny, you'll never find assurance within yourself as if you could evaluate your decision as a, as a young boy or evaluate the quantity or quality of your faith. The issue is not, did you believe enough or sincerely enough or like meet some standard of faith? The issue is, is Jesus enough? It's the object of your faith. That, that's why God never commands perfect faith to be saved. He just says, believe in Jesus. That's because Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. Everybody here is seated in a chair. I'm kind of amazed. I mean, do you, have you considered like the risk you might be assuming? Are, are you actually fully trusting in that chair right now? 
I mean, has your faith in that chair been perfect for the last uh, hour and eight minutes that we've been here? I mean, do you, do you know the manufacturing process for putting that chair together? You say, I, I see where you're going with this, but like, stop, you're making me nervous by asking these questions. It's kind of weird right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you never once wrestled with whether these chairs will hold you. We have a long track record of worshiping in this room using these chairs. And they're not just good for sitting on. I mean, I've seen some people use them as like stepping stools to reach things here and there, and the kids are really creative with how these chairs are used. It's a non-issue because we know the nature of these chairs. They actually are manufactured and assembled in a, in a really great way, and, and we've got a, a, what, a couple of years worth of, of use now that verifies you can trust these chairs. They're absolutely reliable. And you know what? How much more the Son of God absolutely reliable sacrifice that he made for us is perfect in every way his blood is powerful to cleanse us from all unrighteousness some of you struggle to believe today which which could either be an indication that that you just don't know him well enough it'd be like somebody saying I, you know what i've seen too many chairs collapse under people so i'm just gonna i'm just gonna stand throughout the service because i don't trust the chair we would say oh dear friend rest these chairs will hold you. And we would say, believe on Jesus. He can save you. It's the object of our faith. And as we were singing earlier, through faith in Jesus Christ, by his blood, it's the only agent. It's the only agent of perfect cleansing. Hebrews 9.22 says, under the law, the Old Testament law, almost everything is purified with blood. Bulls, goats, lambs, other animals. And then it makes this stunning statement, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You know, if Jesus didn't die and bleed out on the cross, there would be no forgiveness for any of us. But he did die and he did bleed. There is forgiveness. And so that's what puts the force uh, and, and effectiveness even in a passage like 1 John 1, 9 that says, if we confess our sins, that, that's just faith being active. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And even in 1 John, John writes of the blood of Jesus Christ is continually cleansing us. This is why these truths, when you package them together, are why we often say salvation is by grace alone. Because remember, that's the source. God is doing you a favor that you didn't earn and you don't deserve it. It's the nature of grace in Christ alone because he alone shed his blood and there is nothing you or I could add to it through faith alone. That's the means, you, and you don't add something to your faith. Not even faith itself is really a work. But we activate our faith, but it, it's all in Christ. That's the gospel in its essence. And where does it take you? It takes you to the cross. We look back by faith, in a sense, we live in the shadow of the cross, and that's exactly where God wants you to live. He's not saying, I've done my part to save you, now you do your part and fill in the rest. No, he's saying, come to me. Come to me. The theologian and author John Stott wrote, the value of faith is not to be found in itself, but entirely and exclusively in its object, namely Jesus Christ and him crucified. Listen to this. Faith is the eye that looks to him the hand that receives his free gift, the mouth that drinks the living water. Are you thirsty? Are you empty? Come. 
and drink the living waters. Love, forgiveness, vast and boundless. Christ, he is our living waters. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Do you believe it today? Do you believe this good news that God's grace has turned away his wrath in Christ? That God's son has died your death and mine and borne our judgment? Do you believe today that God has mercy for you and me, undeserving as we are? And do you believe that by grace there really is nothing left for us to do or even contribute? The only thing God asks today is that you receive what he offers by grace. I wonder if there is anyone here this morning who is acknowledging maybe for the first time I am sinful in ways that I despair over, but I see it and I believe it. This Jesus is Savior and I want him. Would you acknowledge that while heads are bowed and eyes are closed just, just by lifting your hand quietly and, and obscurely? I'm not gonna call you out, but I would like to know that I might pray for you first of all and then maybe we can have a, a follow-up conversation. You say, Danny, yes, I believe. I am believing. Many of you are followers of Jesus at this point and you have, you've heard this gospel and responded in faith. You've repented of your sins and, and as you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you began to know all these marvelous blessings. But somehow you've drifted away from this recently and if you were really honest, you would say, I, I've, I've gotten away from this grace. I'm feeling a lot of pressure to measure up right now before God and even others. And I, I've actually fallen into the snare of compare if we're really honest at this moment. And I, I recognize what a deadly trap that is and I'm turning away from that. I need to live like one who has been justified. If that's where you are right now, just speak to the Lord from your heart to his. He knows this already, but just share it with him. Lord, this is where I am. It's what I'm struggling with. Would you come again and strengthen my heart? As we say here every week, I just want to remind you again that we recognize that discussion together is often necessary, not just helpful. I mean, we, we need one another. Sometimes praying for and with one another is the right next step. And there are several of us who would love to do that right after this service concludes. I'm available, Matt's available, Daniel's around, but you're in a room full of people who would love to open God's word and, and just point you to God's truth that could encourage you, that could bless you. We'd love to serve you in that way. Or you say, I can't do that today, but could we meet later? Yes, we can. That'd be my final little offer. It, it, again, as heads are bowed and eyes are closed, is there anyone here who would say, I would love to have a follow-up meeting with you, Danny, or somebody else here? Could I, And I'm just signify that. Just raise your hand right now and I'll make a mental note of it and we'll get together and make a plan. Yes, thank you. Anyone else? Father, thank you for this good gospel. It's a great gospel. It's the only gospel. And would you please just seal to our hearts this glorious news that there is a righteousness from you apart from the law. Let this righteousness that came at great cost through the death and shedding of Christ's blood. Oh, 
Let it not only be precious to us, but let it be powerful in us. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.